time for Legally Speaking. Joining us, as always, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan uh, Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Sorry, Michael, I tripped over my words there. I don't normally do that. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. You know, the wheels of justice just keep on turning. You know, I have to say, I may have been doing a double take reading our first story and wondering if somebody's playing a prank on me. <laughs> Does this say $10 million fine for theft of maple syrup? Indeed. It could not be a more Canadian story. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's dive in. So, so this just out of the Supreme Court of Canada this morning, uh, and the background to it is that the accused in this case actually managed to steal maple syrup, which was valued at, if you can believe it, $18 million. Wow. And you might wonder, how would anyone collect up $18 million of maple syrup? Uh, well, the answer to that is in Quebec, they've got a marketing scheme where people that are uh, produce maple syrup sell it to this government entity, goes into a warehouse, and then they would store it and market it, I suppose, and sell it. Uh, and uh, this fellow masterminded um, the theft of many barrels of maple syrup by taking them out, of, having them taken out of the warehouse, the maple syrup taken out, filling up the barrels with water, and putting the water-filled barrels back in the, the warehouse. Uh, and he did that uh, to quite an extent, taking the $18 million in uh, maple syrup. Now, hot maple syrup, hot in the sense stolen, not yes. temperature-wise, <laughs> has a lower value than legitimate maple syrup. But nonetheless, uh, the man managed to sell the stolen maple syrup for $10 million. Wow. And that, wasn't, uh, that was acknowledged. That's what happened. Uh, so he got $10 million for the stolen maple syrup. And then after a period of time, of course, it's a lot of barrels, he had help. He then paid off other people that helped with the maple syrup theft, resulting in this man coming out with a profit personally at the end of the day after paying off the other helpers of $1 million. So he's convicted uh, and in, he's sentenced to eight years in jail. Right? It's a pretty long-standing substantial theft. Yeah. Um, uh, and in addition to that, uh, the Crown sought and was granted um, forfeiture of proceeds of crime. And in the criminal code, there are provisions which, in addition to the sentence imposed on somebody, allows a court to forfeit the profits of the proceeds of crime. And if the person still has, for example, the thing that they stole, well, that's easy. Like if you caught the man with, uh, you know, he moved the maple syrup to another warehouse, you could forfeit the maple syrup, right? Or... If the man had a bag with the money that he just got for selling the maple syrup, you could forfeit that. Probably not much of a surprise. But what happens when the thing that was stolen or the money has been transferred somewhere else, given to other compatriots in crime? Something's happened to it. You can't just get it anymore. Well, they've thought of that. And there's a provision that allows a judge to impose a fine instead of forfeiture, right? Mm -hmm. and Part of the idea there might be to, you know, let's say, for example, you thought the thief had squirreled the money away in, you know, you know, bank accounts in the, you know, Caribbean, or they, you know, turned it into gold bars and buried it. Yeah. The idea there would also be, look, we can't find the gold bars or where you've managed to squirrel the money away, but the judge could just impose a fine equal to the value of the property, and if you don't pay it, it results in a long. The judge can impose a long default jail time. Hmm. And now the issue is this. The language in that section refers to the fine being an amount equal to the value of the property. Hmm. And so now what? The man got the $10 million, 
he had all of the $10 million. That's agreed. Mm-hmm. He later paid off other people that helped, but he had the $10 million. And so the trial judge concluded that he was not allowed to impose a fine in any other amount. It had to be the value of the property, which he had at some point in time, $10 million. Yes. And so he did that. And the judge imposed a $10 million fine in default, six years in jail, in addition to the eight years in jail. You don't want to steal maple syrup in Canada. No. And, and uh, so he appealed that, uh, arguing that, hey, you shouldn't, I don't have $10 million. I had to pay off my criminal associates. I only got $1 million. <laughs> what if you wrote there. it down? Yeah, do you have contemporaneous yeah. memorandization of your criminal enterprise? I, I, I'm sure they provided receipts, right? I'm sure it was all <laughs> taxes were paid, all of this sort of thing. And the Court of Appeal agreed with him. And they said, yes, yes, that a judge has discretion to do that because the language in here is a judge may impose a, a fine in an amount equal to the value of the property. Um, it then went to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Crown appealed, and the Supreme Court of Canada disagreed with the Court of Appeal and agreed with the trial judge and said, look, you don't have any authority to do anything other than impose a fine equal to the value of the property except for some limited circumstances. Like, for example, let's say, you know, two or three people were convicted. You could divvy it up and make each of them responsible for a portion of it. Or as here, there was a separate order where the man was ordered to pay some $900,000 roughly to the, you know, marketing board for the maple syrup that happened earlier and separately. That could be deducted. But otherwise, the Supreme Court of Canada has found that, indeed, this section dealing with what's to happen where there's to be forfeiture, but you can't get the stuff back. The judge must make the order in the full value of the property that the person had in their possession any time. You can't reduce that by virtue of the fact that you gave some to your criminal associates or that you later lost at gambling or the bag of money flew out of your truck or something as you escaped the bank. If there's to be an order, it's got to be the full amount. And so, so uh, just, just to make sure I... Just to make sure I understand. Sorry, sorry. I just I I want to make sure I didn't lose you. So if if we're in default, it's an extra six years. What if I have nine hundred ninety thousand, but I'm ten grand short? Is that still six years? Six years. Wow. Okay. And so the man's going to have got an eight year jail sentence, uh, and then I guess we'll see whether he's uh, able to come up with the money or he's back and he's got ten years to pay. Wow. And if he doesn't pay, then he'll be back in prison for another six years. And I guess the concept there would be it might put pressure on somebody to maybe lean on their criminal associates to cough the money back up or go out and dig up the buried gold or something, right? Uh, Because otherwise it would be too easy for somebody to say, well, I don't know, I gave it to Larry. and (laughs) I don't know what Larry did with it, right? Or I just can't find it and not try too hard. And so the idea is to, I guess, uh, put extreme pressure on the person to come up with the money. But on the other hand, I guess we have to ask ourselves, is it fair that somebody who can't come up with the money, if they can't, uh, has to spend six years in prison? Yeah. In addition to the eight years in prison he got for the, the theft. So that's the very Canadian story on maple syrup theft over the Supreme Court of Canada just this morning. Fascinating. What's next on the list? Uh, next on the list uh, is a uh, another case that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada recently that dealt with the issue of election uh, as to what kind of trial somebody would get to have in a criminal case. And the way that works is that if a person is charged with a a more serious kind of criminal offense, which is preceded with by indictment, which is distinct from a summary conviction offense, that's our Canadian equivalent, indictable and summary, 
to what you've seen on the movies and TV shows from the U.S. where they talk about felonies and misdemeanors, right? The felony being more serious in Canada, indictment is more serious. When you're charged by indictment, there are some additional procedural protections that are engaged, including the right to choose what kind of trial you would want to have. You could choose to have a trial with a provincial court judge, a Supreme Court judge, or a Supreme Court judge with a jury. And in a criminal case, there are some big choices that are really for the accused person to make, not their lawyer. They include, how does a person want to plead, guilty or not guilty? Does the person want to have a trial with a jury or a judge, the the election? And do they want to testify? Those are really up to the accused person, not their lawyer. It's kind of like when you see your doctor, your doctor's job is to tell you, you know, here are the kinds of surgeries you could have, or here are the pills you could take, here are the pros and cons. And then it's for the patient to decide what they want to do with the information the doctor's provided. Your doctor isn't to just pin you down on the operating table and, you know, (laughs) take out your appendix or something. It's supposed to be the patient deciding and the lawyer taking instructions on those critical points, right? Like a client doesn't tell a lawyer how to conduct a cross-examination any more than you tell your doctor what kind of scalpel to use when performing the operation. Yeah. you sure do need to make the decision, do you want the operation or uh-huh. do you want the pills? And here what happened, uh, it was a serious assault on a fishing boat in Newfoundland and Labrador, maybe the second most Canadian story <laughs> today after the maple syrup theft. And what happened is the man's lawyer chose a provincial court judge trial without getting clear instructions from his client. The man was convicted. At the end, when he was convicted, he then blamed the lawyer and said, I didn't get to choose that this was the kind of trial I was going to have. And so I won a new trial. The case went to the Court of Appeal there, and the Court of Appeal said, yes, this is a fundamental decision. The man didn't get to make it. You get a new trial. That went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they came to a different decision. The Supreme Court of Canada found that, yes, indeed, the man lost out on his right to make a choice. But there was no indication that the man would have made any different choice had the option been put to him. He didn't say, I wanted a jury trial. He just said, I wasn't given a choice, right? Uh, And so the Supreme Court of Canada found that, well, the lawyer should have gotten clear instructions from him about what he wanted to do. There's no indication that it caused any harm because the man didn't say, I wanted a jury trial and I didn't get one. His complaint was simply, I didn't get to make a choice. Uh, And so on that basis, the Supreme Court of Canada said that while it was a problem, there was no prejudice to the man. And as a result, he doesn't get a retrial, which, of course, the man could choose to have the same kind of trial all over again, right? If the complaint was just, I didn't get a choice. Uh, And so that's the decision over the Supreme Court of Canada on the issue of what happens when a person doesn't get their proper choice to pick what kind of trial they want to have. Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers will continue in just a moment. And this is Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. What's next on the agenda, Michael? Uh, next on the agenda is another case that deals with that sort of concept of consent um, in the medical context. Hmm. Uh, and it uh, arose in this way. Um, it's a civil case which was brought by a woman who was prescribed a contraceptive patch rather than uh, pills, right? It'd be the similar uh, thing, but in a different format. Mm-hmm. Um, and the woman, very sadly, after she started using the patch, suffered a severe blood clot, causing her permanent uh, injuries. Mm-hmm. And so she's sued the company that made the patch. 
Um, and uh, part of her uh, claim was that the company hadn't put a sufficient and proper warning uh, with the patch in the box it came in, uh, describing the fact that she alleges that the patch causes a much higher risk of this kind of um, uh, stroke that she suffered, uh, or blood clot that she suffered, sorry. Um, and the companies that she was suing were trying to get her claim stopped uh, in British Columbia uh, on the basis that the woman hadn't, they alleged, um, set out uh, what was required in the what are called the pleadings. And the way that works is that when you're suing somebody, you would set out in writing what you're claiming the other person did, yes. right? what they did wrong. And then the other person in their reply to that would set out why they think they were okay or didn't do something wrong. And yeah. that sort of frames what the case is going to be about, right? Um, and in this case, the company that manufactured the patch said, look, the, the woman didn't say in her pleadings that she either read the warnings in the package or that if she did read the warnings and it had some more dire warning, that she wouldn't have used the patch. And so they were saying that should be fatal to her claim, right? Because if, uh, if the complaint is the warning wasn't adequate, unless there's some evidence that you either didn't read the warning or would have acted differently had the warning been something else, they say, well, there's no basis here to conclude there's any problem. And the analogy to that in the sort of broader medical treatment context would be that when somebody is going for some medical treatment, taking drugs or having surgery or any medical procedure, there is an obligation on the person providing that or doing it to tell the person about the benefits and risks associated with it so the person can make an informed decision, yes. right? Uh, now, the amount, the implication of not providing a full detailed explanation of all of the risks is going to depend on the nature of the surgery or procedure performed. So let's say, for example, um, you're offering a um, eyelid, eyelid, eyelid enhancement surgery or something, right? Mm -hmm. Some you know, beautification procedure. Yes. You better be very careful when you lay out the risks, right? If this might cause blindness, you better make that clear, yeah. right? And if you don't, and the person has the procedure and they go blind, they're going to have a pretty compelling cause for complaint, right? They may say, I never would have had this, you know, beautification procedure if I realized I could go blind. That's unreasonable, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, if you stumble into an emergency department with a knife sticking out of your chest uh, and the doctor says, oh, my God, we have to perform surgery, but doesn't tell you about the risk of anesthetic <laughs> or something. Yeah. Uh, well, that may be deficient. They probably should tell you about all the risks of things. But if the conclusion is there's just no option here, any reasonable person, even if they're told there's a one in a million chance of having an adverse reaction to the anesthetic, is still going to have the doctor perform the surgery to get the knife out of their chest. Yeah, because right? they're dead anyways. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. So they're going to even if so even if they weren't given the warning, if they would have done it anyways, well, no harm, no foul. Uh, and so that's really what the company was arguing here, saying, look, the, the woman didn't say she read the package insert, nor did she say if she had read the package insert and has had the information that she said should have been there, that she wouldn't uh, have used the patch anyways. Hmm. And so that's what the trial judge and then the Court of Appeal uh, had to wrestle with. And the Court of Appeal agreed with the trial judge decision uh, that it wasn't necessary for the woman to plead those things, like claim that she ha had read it or claim that she wouldn't have proceeded if the warning had been there. And the rationale or the reasoning was that 
it was a matter of expert opinion that evidence would have to be called about what exactly the warning should have been, right? Should it have said, you know, this is much more risky than taking the pill? <laughs> or yeah. you know, what exactly should it have said? Yeah. And the idea that a person would have to have an affidavit or have in their pleadings, uh, I wouldn't have done this if you had said X, both presupposes what X should have been, uh, and the Court of Appeal concluded would have just been a self-serving claim, right? Somebody saying, you know, I never would have done this if you told me about the risks. Uh, and so they've allowed the they've allowed the claim to proceed. The court of appeal has, and the woman will be or woman's lawyer will be able to amend the pleadings to set out what was required. Uh, but then it will be a matter for evidence at the trial about what exactly should have been in the warning box, right? If more was required, and would this have made a difference for this particular woman, right? Was this the equivalent of the person with? eyelid enhancement surgery or went blind and wasn't told about that risk? Yeah. Or is this the person who's the equivalent to the person stumbling in with the knife out of their chest who would have had the surgery anyways, and it doesn't really much matter that the doctor didn't tell them about all of the you know, far-flung risks that could be involved with that kind of a surgery when the alternative would be death. Yeah. And so the case will be allowed to proceed, but I thought it was a, a good and interesting one that sort of highlights again that issue of consent and how important that is both in the legal context, like with the elections, and in the medical context, the consent to uh, have a particular procedure done. And for that to be meaningful, the person has to be told about the risks that they could face so that they can make an informed decision for themselves, right? Both the medical system and the legal system have some of these core values, uh, which include you know, the autonomy of the patient or client to make those really important decisions. And the only way that can happen is if they're given all of the necessary information so they can consider for themselves what they should do based on all of their personal concerns and characteristics and risk, risk tolerance and all of that. Um, and so we'll have to wait and see what the uh, outcome is with the patch. But I guess the other takeaway for people is whatever is on there, however adequate it might be, make sure you carefully read the information you're given, uh, or that may be a, a problem if something occurs uh, to you later. This case is very familiar. Have we discussed it before? Uh, probably some variation of it. Yeah. I don't think this particular one, but with, with some frequency, um, things go wrong, right, in yeah. the medical world. Um, and many of them aren't uh, things which are going to produce uh, a possible lawsuit, right? When you have a, a medical procedure done, your doctor isn't guaranteeing that it's going to succeed, right? That's not the standard expected. Yeah. What's expected of the doctor or the, you know, the company producing a medical product or whoever it might be would be to inform somebody, right, of the benefits and risks so that the person can make a choice for themselves and then act reasonably, right? It's not a guarantee of success. And so every time a surgery goes wrong or it isn't successful, that doesn't necessarily mean you could successfully go and sue the doctor uh, who performed it. You would have to show that either you weren't told about the risks and you would have made a different choice had you been, uh, or that there was some failure to uh, carry it out in a, a reasonably competent fashion. We've got two and a half minutes left. I see here comments by the Crown following a conviction highlighting the role of the Crown in Canada. Yeah, I think this is just worth mentioning, and we can do it in two minutes. Um, it highlights the what the Crown what Crown Council in Canada's role is. That is to say, 
They're not there in every case to try to seek a conviction or get the maximum possible sentence, and they're not a lawyer for the complainant. Um, and this was in a, a story in the uh, Times Colonist. It was Louise Dixon wrote the story. I was quoting uh, Tim Stokes, who's an experienced crown here in Victoria, following the conviction in a tragic impaired driving causing death and bodily harm case. And the quote here, which I thought was notable, you know, when asked about the conviction, he said, It's a solemn day. A young man has been found guilty of a very serious offense. The victim's family and the victims will hopefully get some closure, but it's not a happy time and then spoke about what he was going to do in terms of submissions on sentence uh, and indicated he was going to review the the law and make submissions to the court about the appropriate range of sentence based on what the law would require. And the reason I thought that was notable is is it really highlights what Crown Council's proper role is. They're not there uh, trying to get a conviction at all costs or celebrating uh, what is genuinely a tragic outcome for everyone, right? Here, a person died and was seriously injured. But on the other hand, it looks like a young Aboriginal man uh, may be facing a very serious jail sentence as a result of what he did. Yeah. Um, and it just highlights that sort of balanced uh, approach to these things, right? It's not a celebration when somebody is convicted. It is indeed a sad day. And the Crown's role isn't to try to seek the maximum uh, penalty that could be imposed, but rather to make submissions about what the law requires. And so I just thought it was a, a notable uh, uh, story to talk about uh, because the uh, description of what happened by Crown in that case, I thought was sort of pitch perfect in terms of uh, what the proper role of the Crown is. Very well. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX. Always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye now.